the small steps approach says, well, rather than jump in with both feet, why not choose something that is, uh, you know, set your challenge as something small and achievable instead of having, you know, when, when you're, if you're used to having a, a couple of glasses of wine in the evening when you get home, then why not try wine-free Wednesdays and then, you know, and maybe add a Monday. So it's doing things that are, it's making changes that are achievable um, and sustainable. Welcome to Zestful Aging, where I speak with fascinating change makers from all over the world who are contributing to the common good. Contributing to the common good in even the smallest of ways is proven to help us age with vitality and deep contentment. I'm your host, Nicole Christina, psychotherapist and fellow Zestful Ager. My goal is to share optimism about aging and introduce you to guests who will inspire you to live with zest. And to find out more about this podcast, hop on over to ZestfulAging.com. While you're there, sign up for my weekly email newsletter, The Insider, where you will get behind-the-scenes looks at our guests and other fun tidbits. And if you love the podcast, I'd be grateful if you shared it with your friends. Our music is courtesy of Judy Banker, who was a previous guest on the show. Find out more at judybanker.com. And our technical director is Stephen Litweiler. We have a fabulous interview for you today. We're going to spe be speaking with Angela White, who's also known as the Running Granny. And in September of this year, she ran 875 miles from John O'Groats to Land's End, the entire length of Great Britain, to raise awareness of health and aging and to change perceptions of aging and expectations of older age. It was a world record attempt as the oldest female to do so, and she's waiting to see whether Guinness will ratify the record. Welcome to the show, Angela. Thank you. It's really good to be here. I'm so interested to hear about your story because you're known now as the running granny, but it, it wasn't always that way. No, it wasn't. In fact, um, I... Yes, uh, over the last 10 years, really, I, I found myself um, overworking, um, putting on weight um, more than I wanted. Uh, I was quite unfit and I wasn't very happy. And uh, so, I say, about 10 years ago, I decided that I needed to uh, take some measures myself. Um, no one else was going to do it for me. And it was quite difficult, really, because when you've got a, a you know a, a high pressure job, a family, a home, uh, to take any time out for yourself it feels rather selfish, and you feel rather guilty for doing so. But I knew that if I didn't make some time for me, then I wouldn't be able to be well enough to look after everything else that I needed to. So I started by. Walking, that was the first thing that I did, just making time to go out and walk for 10, 15 minutes a day initially. Um, 
And I did feel bad about it, but I also felt a lot better in myself. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I looked at uh, other areas of my life as well. So I looked at what I was eating, um, what I was drinking. I looked at my social contact, um, which had diminished considerably given my world had become quite small where I'd been given, I had just had so much work on my plate that um, by the time I'd done that, come home in the evening and sorted things at home, there really wasn't much time for anything else. And the irony, of course, is that you are a physician and were in healthcare taking care of others. Absolutely. But um, I also see the same uh, challenges in many of my colleagues um, it's uh, yes, it is. It is ironic, <laughs> very much. So, so you were you were doing surgery on people and getting. It sounds like shortcut. You were getting burnt out and and not taking care of yourself. Yes, and I think that's 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 the, the, the correct phrase. I I was becoming burned out um, uh, because up to the point at which I made started to make changes. I had kept having glimpses of myself and um, and I could see things weren't right. And, and my story isn't, um, is not uh, untypical of many, uh, many people, particularly women in uh, the sort of late 40s and early 50s who are, uh, work, you know, working, they are bringing up their families and they may have illness in the family amongst their parents or sometimes their partner and you you do find yourself pushing and pushing um to to meet all your what you see as your obligations um and you have you find the one thing that does go is time for you particularly any social contact mm-hmm. so, and you, and what was the point? I mean, you had done this, I'm guessing, for quite a while. It's a very rigorous job, even within, at least in the U.S., even within medicine, orthopedic surgery is, uh, you know, one of the more intense specialties. So you've been pushing it for a while. Do you remember the moment that you said, wait a minute, this has got to change? I think when I was finding that I was experiencing, I suppose, symptoms of overworking, so mm-hmm. increasing headaches, feeling as if I wasn't completing all the tasks that I needed to. So patients and ward rounds, that sort of thing, obviously had priority. But it was all the other stuff that I was doing. I had a number of leadership roles within my organisation, and so there were a lot of meetings, there was a lot of admin, there was a lot of aggravation as well. Um, it's been a rapidly changing world in health over the last couple of decades um, with the need to, with austerity, with the need to try and be more efficient, with the increasing demand through um, the, 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 you know, through uh, I, I hesitate to say the aging population, but people are living longer, and the co- and the co- the multiple problems that they develop mean that looking after them becomes more complex. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's there's a greater demand on the system, and it's very challenging for any of my colleagues, whether they're in the 
uh, on the front line or whether they're in supportive roles to be it's challenging for them to be faced with the the need to change the way we practice the the you know to change the the whole administrative wrapper in in some cases in the way that we we work the way that patients are referred to hospitals to to appointments um the way they're seen um doing things such as what we, we do one-stop clinics where for, for some specialties where they they need to be organized so that patients come in in the morning and they have everything from their assessment through to their tests through to their decisions to treat mm-hmm. all taking place on the same day and i see and so that's a lot of change for people and it produces a lot of Ag- aggravation and challenging situations to deal with and I, I found which takes a lot out of you when you're trying to lead that change and in the culture um, of medicine in the UK and I, I hope this is not a silly question um, is there any uh, any thought given to caring for the caretakers any kind of idea that there may be secondary trauma any any idea that we have to care for our, our medical people so they don't get burned out is there is that talked about I mean I know in the US it's a real problem I don't know what it's like in your country uh, it's it's one of those things that um is recognised, um, but uh, in practice, in dealing with it, it's uh, it's quite challenging. We have um, uh, we have you know occupational health department you know, departments within organisations. Although increasingly, the physicians that work in those areas are not employed by the organisation, but it's a um, a bought in service. Mm-hmm. Um, and those occupational health doctors are there to advise on um, you know, ro- you know, job adjustments that might be made in order to uh, mitigate um, uh, risks of uh, what tend to be further um, damage to an individual. But um, what seems to be happening really is that colleagues are, particularly in general practice, there are fewer and fewer doctors who work full time. They, 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 many of them work part time. Um, often, le- you know, often less than four days a week in order to mitigate the risk of the drain on themselves. Mm, that's interesting. I I'm aware that because I see doctors in my practice that there's a real concern, at least in the U.S., of increased depression, increased suicide, increased substance abuse here. That this is a a real crisis in the field, um, and I don't know if that's something that you've also been seeing. I I suppose I haven't seen I haven't seen so much personally I know of quite a few colleagues who have chosen to retire early as a mm-hmm. consequence of the the general changes so some of that will be stress induced some of it will simply be that they they feel they don't want to work in a system that doesn't um, or that has changed so much in the years that they've been part of it and we mm-hmm. have seen huge changes that's what I'm hearing as well. That yep, mm-hmm. but the uh, to be fair, I think most of the 
most of the colleges and the general medical council would would say you know would say well yes there there are a variety of services available there are all, there are indeed quite a few mental health services available for um for doctors in the UK to um to to contact and your first port of call would always be your you know your own gp um mm-hmm. and or the occupational health department within within your organization um but there's this, there's there is stigma still attached to um to, to having a mental health problem and so many doctors w- don't want to um i suppose declare it mm-hmm. so you took and so you took matters into your own hands and said I need to figure this out. Well, I did. I, I, yes. So initially, I made changes for myself, but in, eventually, I left the organisation that I was working for mm-hmm. because it wasn't. It wouldn't have got any easier. Mm-hmm. Was that a hard decision? Uh, it was an incredibly hard decision. Yes. Yes. Mm-hmm. So it sounds like you really had to have some perspective on, you know, what was um healthiest for you ultimately that you were having to make an assessment of is this the way i want to spend my life yes that's right but i think it's led on to other things i initially worked for once one night when i left i initially worked for myself as an independent consultant using my a mix of skills both from my medical career and from my previous career in um in the computer industry um, mm-hmm. So I've led and worked on a number of projects that uh, have been uh, to do with healthcare IT and mm-hmm. um, electronic patient health records and so on. So that's been quite good. But I've also worked in a consultative capacity on things like um, sort of the the future of the workforce in health. So I've worked with um, a Department of Health group on that. Um, so I've used my skills in, in other ways. You've done this professionally, too, this whole idea of we're aging. What is that going to look like um, for the population and for healthcare? So it sounds like you are thinking about this on a personal level, starting to walk and starting to say, I have to make some adjustments, but you are also doing it professionally. Yes, yes, very much so, looking, mm-hmm. looking forward. And, um, and now... I, I mean, one of one of the the big concerns that I have is the large amount of money that is, of the healthcare budget that is spent on looking after people who develop um, what we call collectively long term conditions. So in the UK, seventy uh, percent that seven zero percent of the whole health and care budget is used to uh, look after people with long-term conditions so that's your that's many of your conditions your neuromuscular conditions so things like parkinson's and muscular sclerosis and alzheimer's but it's also many conditions that are preventable such as Mm -hmm. obesity um, and the complications that that leads to such as type 2 diabetes and high blood pressure heart and lung disease uh, and also anxiety and depression which is a you know can be prime, you know, a primary healthcare condition, 
but it can also be secondary, particularly if you have other long-term conditions. Um, the biggest growth in long-term conditions is in younger people developing obesity and those other preventable conditions. So I'm very concerned about what that growth and what that, those numbers mean for the ability of this country to deliver all the other aspects of healthcare that we need for the population. And that mm-hmm. will be the same in, you know, in the, the States as well mm-hmm. uh, and many other uh, countries. If we, if we have to spend all our money on treating people with long-term conditions, then there isn't anything left for your accident and emergency, your maternity care, mm-hmm. your paediatrics mm-hmm. and so on. And I, I worry that my grandchildren and their children when they have them, won't be afforded the same healthcare privileges that we've had over the last mm-hmm. um, you know, 60, 70 years. I see. So it sounds like you've become somewhat of an evangelist for taking care of oneself. And you use the term um, in some of your work, these small steps, how important these small steps are. And I think fully realizing that the average uh, middle-aged woman is not going to start running you know, the entire length of Britain, right? <laughs> okay. So would you talk a little bit about these small steps? Yes, of course. So it's quite a time, timely point to mention them, really, because here we are in December and, you know, shortly after Christmas, people will be starting to think of all those New Year resolutions that they want mm. to make. Right. And quite often people will dive in with uh, big plans, Nothing wrong with having big plans, but you know, the idea that they're going to go to the gym every day and they're going to lose a stone in the first month or they plan to lose you know, X amount of weight or give up um, tobacco or drinking altogether, or whatever it is, the, right. the bigger the plan, the more difficult it is to deliver upon it. And then... Mm-hmm. Particularly, I mean, dieting is, is something we we see often. People will start a diet, they'll manage to stick with it, depriving themselves of everything that they enjoy for, you know, four weeks, six weeks, maybe even, you know, a few months. But then there comes a point where they, they stop for whatever reason. They might not have lost the weight, they might have lost the weight, but inevitably the weight will go back on. And the small steps approach says, well, rather than jump in with both feet, why not choose something that is, uh, you know, set your challenge as something small and achievable? Um, It could even be fun. You can do it with, you know, do it with a friend. So if you're used to having um, biscuits with your your mid-morning coffee, Mm-hmm. then why not just cut those out? And maybe, you know, it's, it's really difficult. Just cut them out every other day to start with mm-hmm. uh, or replace them with a piece of fruit uh, instead of having, you know, when, when you're, if you're used to having a, a couple of glasses of wine in the evening when you get home, then why not try wine-free Wednesdays and then, you know, and maybe add a Monday. So it's doing things that are, it's making changes that are achievable um, and sustainable. 
And you're setting yourself up for success. Absolutely. So rather than so so and the evidence is that if you can persist with your change for three weeks, then it is more likely to become a habit. And also, don't try to do too many things at one time. Um, you know, so maybe just add something in each month. So it may be that you. Uh, you you know you cut out those biscuits in the first months. Maybe in February you say, well, okay, let's have a little go with this wine. Um, and maybe you know if you wanted to do an extra thing, maybe start that walking. Just go you know at lunchtime, or you know in that coffee break if you wanted to. If your if your job allows you to do it, um, just get up. You know, just go out for that, you know, that 10, 15 minutes and walk rather than uh, have you have those biscuits. It's about doing what you feel is right for you and fits with your own work pattern and, and life pattern. Um, but that is achievable. Mm-hmm. And then you can pat yourself on the back because you've done it. <laughs> and actually, you also, you know, the chances are you won't notice that you've taken that out. Whereas... If you if you decide you're not going to have, you know, if you're going to reduce all your reduce your carbs significantly over over a period of a month, first of all, in the first few days, you're going to feel absolutely rotten as mm. your because your body's used to having you know a certain level of intake, um, so you won't feel right on it. Um, and you'll become then you'll you know you may become tired you know t- tired and fatigued and not able to do other things properly. It may disrupt your sleep. So much better to go for smaller steps. So you took the smaller steps of starting to walk, and how did you get to be the the oldest woman to walk across Great Britain? How how did what was that journey like? Okay, so that was a few years into my small steps. So that was about three years in, and I had answered a an advert that I saw from a lady who was setting up a small running group for older ladies um and i it took me it took me a while to um to actually give her a call i'd picked up i'd noted i'd made a note of the telephone number but again when you whenever you're thinking about starting something new particularly something that is as public as running um, you find you, 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 you've got those 20, day, 20 ways to kill an idea. Um, so, you know, you go thinking, who am I to think that, you know, here I am at the age of 53, who am I to think that I can, you know, I should go running? I'd look ridiculous. I won't be able to keep up. You know, they'll all laugh at me. You know, what will the family uh. think? You go, you go through, you, by the time, you know, if you listen to those voices... Um, it's very easy to talk yourself out of it. And uh, so it took me a few weeks before I picked up the phone. And when I did, I I arranged to go and join this lady. And she was an inspiration. She was at the time 67. And she'd mm-hmm. been, she had started running herself when she was 62. Um, and after a week or so of going out and having this little sort of walk jog, um, with her and the, the group, uh, I learned that she'd set herself a big challenge for the following year, which was 
to do uh, we we have uh, I live in the Lake District in the in in England and we have a lot of um, a lot of mountains and there's a lot of running that takes place around those mountains and there are some very well known uh, classic mountain challenges that people take on and she had set herself the challenge to do one of these and I it sounded um, I, I'd heard about these um, but only about a six months or so beforehand uh, as a friend had d- done one mm-hmm. and they sounded amazing you know you run the one that she was doing you run 48 miles um, over 30, uh, 30 peaks and oh with 17,000 feet of ascent and, oh uh, and at her age she had 24 hours to do it so I offered to go out with her and train with her on the, the hills and I bought my first pair of fell shoes and uh, went out and learned what it was like to just run through cold, wet, muddy bogs. <laughs> and, um, and you walk up the hills, you shuffle along the tops, pick your way carefully down the uh, quite technical descents. Um, uh. I trained with her and then I had the privilege of accompanying her when she actually did, did the event. Um and by then, I was hooked. <laughs> and so, so I was just going to ask you. So again, we start with small steps, start walking, and now all of a sudden you're running through bogs. Did it take a while for you to kind of get the bug, or was it pretty pretty quickly after you uh, joined this group and saw this woman? It wasn't an instantaneous single thing. I. What I found was that by going out with her and doing these, um, wrecking the days with her, uh, I found the huge well-being effect of being up in the mountains, you know, putting all that effort in to climb up something and be on on the tops of the mountains in the clear air with such wonderful views, um, so there was a huge mental well-being effect. But uh-huh. there was there, there was also the the confidence factor. So I had to I had to get well, my map reading skills back up to, to scratch um, uh-huh. because you're you know there aren't there there, there, are, there aren't any signposts necessarily <laughs> <laughs> up there. So, you know, you need to be able to read a map, to read the contours, to recognize where you are. Um, so there was this this great feeling of liberation being up there, but also this, 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 the feeling of being in control, of being able to start at a particular point and navigate successfully round and and back to the starting point. And, you know, sometimes it sometimes it still surprises me that I managed <laughs> to get this right. <laughs> and what was the reaction of your family when all of a sudden, you know, you're coming back from the bogs and the, and the mountains? I, I think they were, I, I, I think there was, there was an element of surprise that this was something that I had taken on but uh, it seemed it coincided with my youngest son going to doing his a levels and then going on a year or so later going on to university so 
it's um it came at the right time really because previous to, to that I would never have been able to take hours and you know to take hours out of my day or indeed a whole day to mm-hmm. go out and do something like that um, mm-hmm. because there would be commitments at home stage of life and uh, offered you the opportunity to take some of your own time and not just being a parent that's right and and what I th- the the other part of it was that having Having learned that I could, that my body would adapt to do these long, you know, these long days, and then having done the first event, as it were, by supporting my friend through her challenge, I, I'm hugely curious as to what I, what my body is capable of, and so that's led to one thing, you know, one thing and another, and doing a variety of different um, races. Um, of increasing length and endurance and just being amazed that my body will perform for me. So I'm not, I'm not fast by any stretch of the imagination. I'm at back of the pack runner, but I have met huge numbers of people. I've made so many new friends Mm -hmm. as a consequence. My social, it's my, my social contact amongst the, the sort of the the running and the endurance community is, as, um, is, is a really rich part of my life. This weekend coming, I'm off to, um, help out on, uh, on an event. So I'll help on Friday set up. Um, register it, folks and then look after them when they return Friday evening and then clear up on the Sunday. So just giving back the time to, you know, to other people in the same way that, you know, other marshals and, uh, you know, give uh, and volunteers support the races that I do. So I've met a lot of people. I've met a lot of people across the age ranges as well. Mm-hmm. One, one of my proudest moments was when a young friend who's, in, who's 30, half my age, a year or so back, Said would you know? In, said would I be prepared to uh, partner her in a mountain marathon? You know, and so uh-huh. I thought, gosh, you know, that's ama- that was amazing. Uh-huh. I thought. <laughs> so the intergenerational piece of it, where you're you're meeting people who normally you would not probably be social with. Quite yeah, that's uh, absolutely yes. So so there are people in in the running community that from there. All backgrounds, all you know, ages, all colours, all backgrounds, all running abilities, and it, you know, if the rain is if the rain is going to fall on you and it, you're going to be soaked through in the middle of the night, then it doesn't matter who you are. If there you know, if there's a bunch of you out there, you'll, you know, you'll endure it together. <laughs> I'm thinking about as you're talking, Angela, how many of the boxes you're checking off in terms of what we know about longevity. I'm thinking about your volunteering, your mentoring, doing physical uh, movement, finding purpose, being in a community. I mean, you are really checking the main boxes of what we know helps people live well and live longer. Yes, I think when you when you put it like that, yes, I am, and I think that's what. So, so, so one of the criticisms that as I've said, I've set. Sorry, let me wind back. I've set up a social enterprise called Going for Old, which I hope to start developing next year, um, and that's 
all about encouraging, motivating and inspiring people to take to take these small steps themselves and adopt positive lifestyle choices to improve their quality of life as they age. And I've been criticised once or twice for uh, with with running the from John Gertzland's end with people saying, well, you know, how does that stack up uh, against you know what you're promoting in terms of the small steps? And my my response is twofold, really. On on the one hand, it was about raising awareness of health and ageing, and of the health and ageing issues, and about the you know trying to change our perceptions of ageing and what our expectations of ourselves are. But on the other hand, my running and doing that particular setting myself that particular challenge grew out of my small steps in going mm-hmm. out and joining that small running group and there are so many parallels with the small steps as you've just you know as you said through the running i'm ticking off the the social contact the intergenerational stuff the um the community the volunteering the sense of pride and pleasure that i get in seeing people achieve the events that they're you know when i'm helping out you see you come you know people come across the line i've been on the line putting medals around the necks of people who've Ah. who've just completed their very first half marathon you know whatever Ah. age they are and just being able to share those three or four seconds where they realize they've done it <laughs> mm, that sounds so touching it's true you know it's it's tremendous um so so there so there's um yeah so so there are a lot of parallels really with doing that they're doing that big um that big run but i firmly believe that if you think that you are what you think and if you mm. think that 50 is a big number or 60 is a big number and and that when you get to 60 you're going to slow down or or it's the appropriate thing to do to slow down then what will happen is when you get to 60 you will slow down absolutely and we see that in the research absolutely whereas if you think i can you know i'm going to do this and this is my next jump and this you know and then i'm going to do that if you think positively and you think fast and you think energetic, then it will come to you. And so often in my running, again, I see the parallels there, the psych- how the psychology works. If I, if I go out and I, and I try a new route and I think, okay, I've set myself up, I think, right, I'm going to run six miles today, mm-hmm. then my body's ready to run six miles and if I get to a point and I suddenly find I've gone wrong and I've got to do another five miles to get home, that last five miles is going to be just horrendous. Uh-huh. Whereas if I think I'm going to go out and do 10 miles and I, in fact, only do eight, I feel cheated. <laughs> Well, I am a senior tennis player, and I went to the uh, National Senior Games in New Mexico. And I will say that 
it's so much of it is mental. When you go out there, um, it's so much about believing you can do it. And when you make a mistake, kind of uh, being able to come back to uh, a, a state of calm and confidence and just working at it slowly but surely. So I really, I've, I've seen that in my own life playing tennis, that so much of this is what we're saying to ourselves. Yeah, it is. And certainly the big races. So there's a, a race that goes, so I've run down the country, but there's a race that goes across the country as well, which I've done, which is 190 miles. And that actually goes across the uh, on all the hills and the dales. So that's not on road as mine was. Um, and I've done that a couple of times. And Again, it's very much a case of it's mind over matter. You know that you're going to run that distance. You know that you're going to be running through bogs. You're going to be running through the night. It's you know it's a continuous mm. race. You can sleep if you want to, where you want. And uh, because you know what's, uh, what's ahead of you, you can do it. But if <laughs> it's, it's very much a mental game. Mm hmm. Oh, it sounds wonderful. I don't know if it's uh, my imagination, but it seems like there's a lot of people that I've read about or heard about or even interviewed in the UK women doing fabulous things like Joe Mosley with her paddleboard. Are you familiar with her? Uh, yes, she's a, it's a name I know. Um, but we've got, um, we've had uh, some brilliant female runners as well there's a winter mm -hmm. race called the, mm -hmm. the spine which runs up the pennine way which is is the spine of, <laughs> of england and uh, that's 268 miles and uh, uh, a young a, a, a vet actually um younger woman won that this year knocking you know some hours off the previous record time Yes, I think women. Women. There, there, there have been lots of questions about um, about the fact that there that there isn't always equity between the women's and the men's races. But uh, I think women do endurance very well. Mm -hmm. This is what I understand. Yes, I think we're very good at just we're very good at just soaking stuff up like sponges. We soak it up, whatever it is, it comes our way. We soak it up. We somehow go and wring it out somewhere, and then, <laughs> and then we go on to the next thing. And every time we do, every time we do it, we learn from it. It builds our endurance. It builds our me it builds that mental side of our endurance and our resilience. I love that uh, analogy of being a sponge, soaking it up and wringing it out. But it sounds like your take-home message is that this doesn't have to look like some kind of extreme race. It can if you want it to, but what you're really advocating is sensible, daily, um, some kind of uh, what we would call... Um, responsibility to your own health and being more intentional about taking care of our bodies is that right it it is it's our bodies and our minds in fact it's it's mm -hmm. it's it's both part it's both parts i think i think it's always difficult if you say people need to take responsibility because i think most people would think that they generally are responsible so i don't one of the things that i don't want to do is to tell people what to do i think people uh -huh. people i think if i if we can provide 
the right level of information for people in a way that they can understand and digest it, um, then people will make the right choices for themselves. And particularly the, the age group in you know around the forties and fifties and sixties, most people recognise they need that you know where they need to make change, but for a variety of reasons don't know how to go about it. Um, there's a certain level of inertia um, mm-hmm. with with how with what people should do. The the media will regularly report a piece of research talking about uh, a food stuff. Maybe it's meat. Maybe it's eggs. Maybe it's coffee uh, or some activity. And then the next day there'll be another report, and they they're simply providing the. The findings of the research. So, you know, it could be today, it could be three cups of coffee is okay, tomorrow it might be none, the next day it might be 25. Mm-hmm. So people think, well, we know, how do I make sense of this? Um, yes. what, what's right for me? Um, mm-hmm. And so one of the things that Going for Old will do is hopefully take some of those, that, that, <laughs> those media reports and make some sense of mm-hmm. them and put them into, into the context of uh, an overall healthy lifestyle, um, mm-hmm. and people tell me they don't. They, you know, I'm not quite sure I should be doing this because, you know, one of the biggest demons that we have is is processed food. People don't seem to have this, whether it's time or but I, or whether it's education in terms of school education. We we were always taught. We all had cookery classes. And we were taught the value of food, how to choose one piece of meat over another and so on. But they don't seem to do that on the curriculum these days. And mm-hmm. so people don't know how to cook. So we've even seen television programs where children don't even know that chips come from potatoes that grow in the ground. Oh, my goodness. Well, you know, I think what you're doing is so powerful using your professional education and experience and really understanding um, what these lifestyle um, uh, choices will do and won't do, but also this personal part of, you know, how this has changed your life and the, the idea of small steps and the idea of making it pleasurable. It's not a punishment for eating. It's a, it's a pleasure to move the body, which has been, you know, engineered to move. So I love how you're bringing both parts of yourself to this. And it's so important. I hope I'm not butchering this, but it reminds me of that quote. I think it's from Confucius saying the journey of a thousand miles begins with the first step. Yes, I think think that, yes, I've certainly heard. That sounds like uh, that describes uh, your journey. And I, I really appreciate you talking to us today. And I'm um, crossing my fingers for you that the Guinness uh, record um, holds. Is that are we are you still waiting to hear? Yes, I won't. I, I, we, they, they won't uh, get back to me for probably about three months. Um, oh. they, they take they they take their time, unfortunately, which is right and proper. They've sent I've sent all the evidence off to them. I know that I. I so in in terms of the record itself, I know that I I know that I've actually achieved setting that record. Whether it's a question of whether they will accept the evidence that I've sent them as being sufficient for them to be able to ratify it um, as as a Guinness record. 
<laughs> what a wonderful, wonderful experience. Um, that's so that's so inspiring, and I know our audience is. Uh, cheering you on and and I hope that you will be very active on social media when that comes to pass. Uh yes we well, I certainly will be but uh, <laughs> it's it's um emotionally it hasn't really sunk in what I did intellectually I know that that I did it but mm-hmm. um I haven't it hasn't really sunk in that I've actually physically <laughs> my, mm. <laughs> myself run oh. every step. <laughs> That's a, that's beautiful. Thank you so much, Angela, and best of luck. And I really appreciate your time today. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me on. It's been lovely to talk to you. Thank you so much for joining us on Zestful Aging. If you like the podcast, please share it with some of your friends. If you think decluttering could help you feel better and you could use a little assistance with that, check out the online course I've developed with professional organizer and designer Carrie Luteran. It's called Too Much Stuff. And Too Much Stuff is different from other courses or articles or guidance you may have used. We give you clear steps to deal with the clutter and the tools to help you face the overwhelming feelings and the emotions that come up when we're going through our clutter. And a lot of those emotions are just feeling anxious or guilty or just basically flooded with a lot of different confusing feelings. The course is really practical. It's realistic. The lessons are short and punchy, and they're really manageable. We're not trying to set you up for some long, exploratory, you know, super in-depth, burdensome experience. We want something really helpful for you right now. We all need help with our anxiety. So, Being surrounded by more calm and less chaos can really help. So now's a good time to clear out the clutter so we can focus on what's really important in our lives. So find out more at zestfulaging.com. You'll see more about this under the web courses tab. If you have any questions, just shoot me an email at zestfulaging at gmail.com. Thanks so much. And stay tuned next week for another interview with a fascinating and inspiring guest.